0: So uh, we're going to be working through a continued introduction to the attributes of God. Pastor Myril opened on the attributes of God last week, and we're going to give kind of a second introductory lesson before we begin diving into studying specific attributes of God. Before we do, I want to return to a few items that Myril kicked off last week. I want to begin by turning our attention to Jeremiah 9.24. Anytime I study an attribute of God, this text... Uh, rings in my mind. Jeremiah writes this. Let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands God. Let him who boasts, God says, let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands me. What a privilege we have before us to seek to grow in our knowledge and understanding of God. Jonathan Edwards said, you cannot love something that you do not know. You cannot love something that you do not know. And every time we turn our attention to this type of study, I think it's important for us to remember against those who would say that this type of study is simply filling our heads with knowledge, meaningless knowledge. We need to remind ourselves that the path to the heart, the path to loving God is through knowledge. It's through what we know. The path to the heart is through the head. You cannot love something that you do not know. Now, fully acknowledge that knowing something is certainly no guarantee that you will love it, but you cannot love something that you do not know. Let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he knows God and that he understands God. I've taught through the attributes of God several times and I've encountered the recommendation that we teach something more applicable than the attributes of God. Can I suggest to you, as Pastor Myril did again, just remind ourselves again that the attributes of God are supremely applicable. When Job was distraught, do you know how God comforted him? By explaining his character to him. When Moses was afraid to go to Egypt, do you know how God emboldened him? He emboldened him with his name, with his character. Do you know what drove Moses to his face in worship on Mount Sinai? It's what he heard about the attributes of God. In Lamentations 3, the author says, I have hope when I remember, and then he lists some of God's attributes. The attributes give Hope, the attributes of God are supremely, supremely applicable for us. I'm excited that we'll be studying them together. Pastor Myro opened last week, helping us to get our bearings on how and why we go about studying the attributes of God. And he gave us key frameworks for the study, namely that God is incomprehensible and yet knowable, and that God is transcendent and yet imminent. Well, our plan this morning is to continue our introduction of this topic, and what we're going to be doing this morning is we're going to be thinking about how to consider the attributes of God as a unified whole. So we're not talking about any specific attributes of God this morning. Instead, we are talking about important principles that help us think rightly about the attributes of God, the attributes as a whole. So I hope you grabbed a handout in the back of the room. We're going to begin by looking at just defining what an attribute of God is. What is the definition of an attribute of God? And I think this this question is very simple to answer. The attributes are simply descriptions of God. An attribute of God is a description of God. As we are studying the attributes of God, we are studying what God is like. God's revelation of his own attributes is God saying, this is what I am like. When we are talking through attributes, we are doing nothing more than describing God based on what he has revealed about himself. We all have attributes, Descriptions of what we are like, but it's important to note that when we talk about God's attributes, God's descriptions, that his attributes are not like ours. First of all, the descriptions of what we are like, they change over time, don't they? I may be patient one day and impatient another day. We grow, we change, we mature, we may weigh more or less than we weighed a year ago. God's attributes are not like that. They never change. He is forever the same. Another difference is that God's attributes are perfect. They are flawless. Our attributes are filled with flaws. If you were to describe a man or woman as godly, that is certainly not perfection in godliness. Our attributes are filled with flaws. So attributes are simply descriptions of God, but when we think of the attributes of God, we need to think of them differently than we think of our own attributes. His attributes are unchanging. His attributes are perfect. Let's talk for a moment about how God reveals his attributes to us. The only way that his attributes can be known is because God has graciously revealed them to us. Last week, Pastor Myrell talked about God's knowability. God is knowable insofar as he has revealed himself to us in a way that we can understand. In God's word, he has revealed what he is like. Now, that revelation of his nature happens two ways in scripture. With, I believe with every attribute of God, both of these are seen. First, he says, this is what I am like by his words, such as in Exodus 34, when God says, I am compassionate, that's a self-revelation, a self-description. I am compassionate, I am gracious, God said to Moses. He's revealing his attributes, descriptions of himself by his words in the word. A second way that he shows this is what I am like is by his actions. John 3:16 shows for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, the giving of the son that action demonstrates an attribute of God. The attributes are seen in his actions. The giving of the son demonstrates, for example, the attribute or description of love according to John 3:16. So the only way that we can know God's attributes is because he has chosen to reveal them and he has revealed them in his word in two ways by his self-description and by his self-display. As we study the word, we see what God is like. We grow in our knowledge of the descriptions, the attributes of God. Move on in your handout to that next section under the definition of an attribute of God. It's important for us to understand that there's a very close link between what God is, in fact, an identical link between what God is and what God does. An attribute of God is a way that we can expect God to act. His actions flow from who he is. The attributes teach us what he is like. If God is his attributes, then it makes sense that his attributes teach us how God acts. And we can answer the question, what would Jesus do? Because of the attributes of God. Make no mistake, God will act consistently with his attributes. He cannot do otherwise. That's why in Psalm 119, verse 68, the psalmist says, you are good and you do good. The doing of good flows from who he is. He is good and therefore he does good. doesn't mean that we can predict God's providential actions or anything like that, but it does mean that we can count on God to act consistently with his character. We can count on God to act consistently with what he has revealed about himself. So with that in mind, with that understanding of what the attributes of God are and how we should think of them, I want to dive into the next section of your handout, which is the relationship of God to his attributes. The relationship of God to his attributes. What we're doing in this study is is called systematic theology, and systematic theology is not without its dangers. I, I love systematic theology. Enjoy it thoroughly, but it's not without its danger. Systematic theology is simply when you take biblical texts and you systemize them, you categorize them. It's the organizing of biblical truth into systematic categories. So, for example, in systematic theology, you may take various texts on salvation and organize those texts in such a way that we crystallize our understanding of how God works in salvation because of a broad study of Scripture as a whole presented in systematic categories. When we're studying the attributes of God, we're doing systematic theology. We are saying, let's look at what Scripture teaches about, for example, the love of God. And we organize those texts and wrap our minds around those texts so that we can present the love of God as a systematic category under the attributes of God. One of the dangers as we approach, uh, one of the dangers of a systematic approach to the attributes of God is that we can begin to think of the attributes like like a slice of the proverbial pie that is God. It's easy for us to think of each individual attribute as a small piece of God, and when you combine them all together, you get God. This leads to the thinking that God is the sum of his attributes, and that each attribute is a percentage of God. So he is 10% of him is love, and 10% of him is mercy, and 10% of him is justice, and so on and so forth. Each attribute is a small slice of the total of God. Well, throughout church history, there's actually been strong resistance to that notion. The Westminster Confession says this, there is but one only living and true God, Who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, watch this, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. We're going to zero in for the next few minutes on the statement that's echoed in the Westminster Confession that God does not have parts. He does not have parts. It's an important topic for us to study on the front end of a study of attributes. But admittedly, I want to acknowledge this topic is going to feel a bit strange. We're going to talk about a doctrine that perhaps only a few of you have heard of. I want to introduce you to a doctrine called divine simplicity. Divine simplicity. Theologians will tell you that it's important for you to understand that God is simple. God is simple. Now, upon first hearing that, you're likely to think that that sounds wrong. Our God is far above us. He is beyond what we can imagine. He is not like us. He certainly doesn't sound simple. But that's, that is not what simple, in the theological categories, that's not what simple means. Simple as a divine attribute should be seen as the opposite of, of compound. Almost how we would speak of Elements in chemistry. A a compound substance has two or more elements that make it up. So, water comes from hydrogen and oxygen. There are two elements that come together to form the one thing that is water. But God is not compound, He's not composed of parts. He is simple. So, again, what is meant when one says that God is simple. Is that God is not composed of parts. He is singular in essence. It's easy for us to fall into the line of thinking that God is, to think of God almost like we would think of a recipe. In a recipe, you combine various ingredients to achieve a new entity that is the sum of its ingredients. Unlike a recipe, God is not what comes out when you combine love and power and immutability and infinity and grace and justice and so on and so forth. It's easy to think of God as the sum of his attributes. You combine all of those, and what comes out is God. But God is not the sum of his attributes. Here's here's why that's a problem. Here's why it's a problem to think of God as the sum of his attributes. When you do that, then each attribute becomes a percentage of God. If God is the sum of his attributes. We begin, when we do that, to even rank certain attributes of God, giving some a higher percentage, perhaps saying that some attributes are more essential to God than others, more foundational to his nature Minimizing other attributes that scripture reveals as attributes of God is less essential or less important or less a part of God's very nature. Let me illustrate this to you for a moment. We've been in Israel and uh, in order to keep with kosher laws in Israel, you don't eat meat and cheese together. So I've had meat and cheese on the mind. I want to talk to you about the Z-Man sandwich at Joe's Kansas City Barbecue. One of my favorite sandwiches The ingredients of the Z-Man sandwich are a toasted bun, sliced brisket, provolone cheese, onion rings, pickles, and barbecue sauce. Amen and amen. Now the question is, which which of those properties, which of those ingredients are essential to the Z-Man sandwich? I think most of us would agree, though I prefer it on mine, that the pickles are not an essential ingredient. Perhaps we could argue that the barbecue sauce is not an essential ingredient. If you took away the barbecue sauce, while I think it's a mistake, I would still acknowledge that you're eating a Z-Man sandwich. But what about this? What about the cheese? What about the onion rings? I mean, if you were to go up to the counter at Joe's and say, I would like a Z-Man sandwich, but hold the cheese and onion rings, I think they would look at you and say, you mean you want a brisket sandwich? Right, it's just, it's just brisket and barbecue sauce in a bun at that point. It's no longer a Z-Man, I would argue. I mean, check this out. The brisket, it's not essential. It's not essential to a Z-Man sandwich. In a travesty of travesties, Joe's Kansas City Barbecue offers what they call the portobello Z-Man. And here's the thing, they're right. The brisket isn't essential to the Z-Man. Pastor Rick prefers the Z-Man with chicken. Now, I know we're getting very philosophical with our barbecue right now, but let me show you why this matters. If we don't think of God as simple, it's easy for us to do the same thing with him. Perhaps you've heard something along these lines. It's very common amongst preachers in a text like 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, when you come to the statement that God is love, some will say, God has mercy. God has justice, but he is love, which suggests that the attribute of love is what God Is It's essential to his being, while those other attributes are just things that God has. They're what theologians call accidental or unnecessary. This is really, I think, we're making a biblical case for divine simplicity where the rubber meets the road on this topic. Scripture simply does not present certain attributes as essential to God and other attributes as unessential. Scripture says that God is many things. It's common to hear things like the statement, God is love, and to use that as an opportunity to place that over other attributes. The problem is that simply doesn't test, the, the, it doesn't stand the test of scripture. Scripture says that God is light. First John chapter one, verse five. Scripture says that God is an all-consuming fire in Deuteronomy chapter four. It's wrong to think of some attributes as essential to his being while others are tangential or accidental. I mean, I I think you would be uncomfortable if I came to you from Deuteronomy chapter four God is an all-consuming fire. And I said, God God has mercy. He has grace. But he is an all-consuming fire. Would it make you a bit uncomfortable? It should. It should. Because there is not one attribute of God that should be elevated over the others as essential to him as his very nature while the others are not. The problem is not so much that we are saying a certain attribute is essential to his nature. The problem is degrading other attributes as non-essential. There are certain things that God has, but it's not what he is. Simplicity pushes back on that notion. I wanna acknowledge that most of the conversation, you've not heard us talk about divine simplicity much in this church. Most of the conversation around the doctrine of simplicity is, is very unhelpful because it gets very philosophical rather than textual. In my experience, those who use passages to support the doctrine of simplicity tend to twist the text a little bit. For example, it's common for people to say, Moses said in Deuteronomy that God is one. The the Shema, hero Israel, our God is one. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. So, he cannot consist of parts. Well, that's not really what Moses was saying when he said that God is one. One, Moses was distinguishing the Israelites as a monotheistic system rather than worshiping many gods as was common in their culture. Pastor Myril showed us last week that we want our beliefs about God to flow from his word. We want our beliefs about God to flow from his word. I do affirm the doctrine of simplicity because I don't believe that scripture teaches that there is one attribute to rule them all or distinctions and parts within God. But it's easy for us to emphasize something like God is love, but forget that scripture says God is many things. And then when scripture says God has a certain quality, that he is that as well. Now, let's look at some important lessons from divine simplicity. That next section in your handout, important lessons from divine simplicity. Why does all this matter? First of all, it's important for us to understand that the attributes are not external to God. God's attributes are not external to him. They are descriptions of his very essence. They are descriptions of his very being. Said another way, you cannot separate God from his attributes. It can't be done. He doesn't change. He is not fickle. He is who he is. You cannot remove an attribute and still have the same God. He is his attributes. They describe the essence of his being. Augustine said it this way, God is what he has. God is what he has. Now, along those same lines, another important lesson is that there is no actual attribute of God that is negotiable or unimportant. There's no actual attribute of God that is negotiable or unimportant. There are certainly debates about certain attributes of God, and it's appropriate for us to think critically about those issues. But No actual attribute of God is unimportant. You cannot remove an attribute of God and still have God because he is what he has. You are removing part of the very essence of God. Our attributes are not that way. Our attributes are not that way, but God's are. I change over time. I've gotten taller or wider or heavier, but my essence has not changed. With God, however, his attributes remain constant, unchanging, because His attributes speak exactly to His essence. They show us exactly what He is. Our attributes are more external to us. They change, His or not. Another important lesson from this doctrine is that God's attributes perfectly permeate one another. God's attributes perfectly permeate one another. Once again, we shouldn't think of God as 10% gracious and 10% just, 10% holy and 10% love and so on and so forth. We should think of God as all gracious, all just, all holy, all loving It's become very common to identify one attribute of God as his overarching attribute. I think this most commonly happens, understandably so, with the attribute of holiness. Because the angels in heaven in Isaiah chapter 6 and Revelation chapter 4 continue to repeat, holy, holy, holy. Some will say that God's chief characteristic is his holiness. It's his overarching attribute. Those arguing for this will point out that the Bible never says God is love, love, love. Or that it never says God is mercy, mercy, mercy. Therefore, God is, they'll say, holy. It overarches all the other attributes. He's holy in his grace. He's holy in his love because it's the overarching attribute. He's holy in his eternality. He's holy in his justice. Now, here's the thing they're correct. He is holy in his love. He is holy in his mercy, holy in his justice, holy in his eternality. He's holy in his grace. Let me ask you something. Does God's eternality permeate all of his other attributes? Is he eternally loving? Is he eternally gracious? Eternally wise? Eternally holy? He is. Does God's immutability, the fact that he does not change, permeate all of his other attributes? Is he unchanging in his mercy? Is he unchanging in his power? Is he unchanging in his knowledge? He is. The problem is not that some have said God's holiness touches all of his other attributes. That's not the problem. The problem is that it's presented as if all the other attributes don't do the exact same thing. Think of God's attributes as a web in which each attribute is touching the other, nothing in tension, all perfectly aligning to form the essence of our great God. Now, I do want to acknowledge something. The perfect interrelation of God's attributes doesn't mean that there aren't higher emphases in Scripture on certain attributes, there, there, there is certainly a biblical accent on God's grace. I think it's spoken of more than his justice. But that doesn't mean that his grace is the essence of God and that his justice is an unimportant or insignificant byproduct. Are there biblical accents? Yes. Are there important and unimportant attributes? No. Let's move on. On this topic, this leads us directly into our next section on the Trinitarian extent of the attributes of God. When we think of the attributes of God, we tend to think of God the Father. When we say God is eternal, you generally, most of us generally don't have the Holy Spirit or Jesus Christ fixated in your mind when you say God is eternal. I'm not suggesting you would deny that Jesus is eternal, But it's just not how we tend to think of the attributes. When we think of the attributes, the accent is typically on God the Father. Well, the Bible teaches the one God is a trinity. One God in three persons, each person distinct from the other, yet each person shares fully in the divine essence. In other words, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each fully God. Now, if the attributes of God reveal the very essence of God, then the attributes of God must be shared across the Trinity. That line is in your handout. The attributes of God are shared fully across the Trinitarian Godhead. Remember, you cannot separate God from his attributes. You cannot separate God from his attributes. What that means is that the attributes of God are attributes of the Trinity. I like to articulate it this way. All that describes God applies to all that God is. All that describes God applies to all that God is. Why does this matter? Well, let me give you an example. I think where this really comes into focus for us is in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth possesses all the attributes of God. If he does not, then he is not God. If he does not possess the attributes of God, then he does not share in the divine essence. Again, returning to the truths that we've already communicated, because God is what he has. His attributes reveal his very essence. And for Jesus to share in that divine essence, he he must bear the attributes of God. Many have said that when God became a man, that he laid aside his divine attributes that's wrong. Jesus did not lay aside his divine attributes. That line of thinking is taken from the statement in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus emptied himself. He emptied himself, but the error in that line of thinking is that they fail to continue reading to see what it meant for Jesus to empty himself. We're not told that he removes anything from his essence in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus does not remove anything when he empties himself. Instead, we're told that he adds something. He adds flesh. He adds humanity. Here's how Paul says it in Philippians chapter 2 verse 7. He, Jesus, emptied himself, how? Taking the form of a bondservant. He emptied himself by adding flesh. We often refer to this as subtraction by addition. He emptied himself by taking on flesh. All of the attributes of God are present in the Son of God. But as the hymn writer said, they are veiled in flesh. They're there, but they're veiled in flesh. They're covered up. Jesus demonstrates the divine attributes during his life. He has all power. Jesus has all knowledge. He is the eternal Son of God. But having the attributes and consistently using the attributes are are different things. Jesus, we're told, grew in wisdom and knowledge as a young boy, and yet he was omniscient. The wonder of the Incarnation. He did not lay aside his omniscience. He did not cease to have all knowledge. Jesus of Nazareth had all power and all knowledge, but he actively chose to live his life as a man by the power of the Spirit. Though he had, though he shared in the divine essence, bearing all of the attributes of God. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are eternal. They are gracious. They are just. They are kind. They are God. One other warning here. Sometimes we can think of certain members of the Trinity as as emphasizing or accenting certain attributes of God in opposition to another member of the Trinity. So one common occurrence of this is to think of the Father as just and the Son as loving and merciful. That the Son came in love to appease the Father's wrath as if God is against us and the Son is for us. Again, that is false. The Son is just. The Son is just. He will one day come with a sword. The Father is merciful and gracious. Once again, John 3.16 tells us that the Son became a man because of the love of the Father. It was God's love that sent the Son. All that applies to God applies to all that God is. The interrelation of the attributes of God carry across the Trinity. One final section we need to touch on as we continue to introduce this topic of the attributes of God is the categories of the attributes. Again, we're covering this morning just how to think about the attributes as a whole.
1: I want to talk about some categories
0: that we're going to be using for the rest of this study on the attributes of God. I want to acknowledge at the front of this that no designation of categories of God's attributes are perfect. There's overlap in these categories. There are false dichotomies that are easily made in the various categories of, of God's attributes that we, that we lay down. One of the most common uh, categories that, that I presume many of you are familiar with is to label them as God's communicable and incommunicable attributes. That is, there are attributes that God does not share with us. He's completely separate from us, and there are attributes that God does share with us. There's a five, uh, a common five-fold classification of God's attributes, the intellectual attributes, the ethical attributes, emotional attributes, volitional attributes, and relational attributes. Another way to break down the attributes of God. I found, and I owe this to, uh, to Dr. Zemek, who Was very instrumental in developing my theology. I found that the most helpful for me is to conceive of God's attributes, and this is what we're gonna be doing in this study, in two broad categories, and that's gonna be attributes of greatness and attributes of goodness. Attributes of greatness and attributes of goodness. Now, again, there is no perfect system here. This is not the perfect categorization. That greatness and goodness is a bit of a false dichotomy. He is great in his goodness, he is good in his greatness. But I think this this designation helps us to think rightly about God's various attributes. God's attributes of greatness. The attributes of greatness emphasize the vast extent of God's infinite nature in ways that are entirely like us. God's attributes of greatness that we'll walk through in this study, um, for example, would be that He is self existent, He's infinite, He's immutable. He's all-powerful. This would fall into the category of attributes that we typically say are incommunicable. That is, that they're not, they, don't, they don't translate to us. You don't become more eternal as you become more like Jesus. You don't become more all-powerful. You don't become more self-existent as you mature in your Christianity. These are not shared with us. They are God's attributes of greatness. There is a vast extent of God's infinite nature in ways that are entirely unlike us. God's attributes of goodness. The attributes of goodness are are more, again, these, these are false dichotomies. You have to be careful here, but as I read through the attributes of goodness, what comes to mind is more personal relationship. Not that the attributes of greatness are not personal. That's why I say there's a bit of a false dichotomy here, but As you read through those, you see God's personal kindness and righteousness in his relationship to his creatures. For example, attributes of goodness would include that God is gracious, that he's just in his dealing with his creatures, that he is loving and faithful and compassionate and kind. There are more that we'll walk through, but uh, as we walk through this study, we'll be working through those general categorizations. We're going to begin with God's attributes of greatness and conclude with God's attributes of goodness. Again, it's not a perfect system. Even as you work through the attributes, there are times where you're like, you know, God's holiness. Is that an attribute of greatness? Is it an attribute of goodness? Well, it's kind of both. It's kind of both. He's holy. He's set apart in glory in a way that does not translate to us in any way. He's set apart in his glory, and yet he's also holy. Scripture says, be holy as I am holy he's holy in his purity, he's set apart in that way in his goodness and in his greatness. So as we think about the attributes of God, I think we'll be kind of qualifying that as we're going, but we'll work through that general designation of attributes of greatness and attributes of goodness. We'll start that list next week. Because we walk away from Again, this introduction to how to think about the attributes of a whole. I know we've, we've been in the deep end of the pool a little bit this morning as we just talk about how to think of these as a whole. I just encourage you to worship God as a God that is entirely unlike us. It is, it is so easy for us to, to try to make God in our image. In Psalm 50, God says, this, this was your tragic mistake. You thought I was like you. God is not like us. As we talk about his attributes, you immediately have to place those, you have to think of them differently than you think of your own. As you talk about God's simplicity, you have to think of him differently than you think of yourself. As we talk about the inner relation of the Trinity and how it relates to these attributes, it, it's unlike anything that you and I share in our experience. But God is not like us. The attributes are supremely applicable, largely because they draw us to worship, to be amazed. I taught our uh, high school students on the attributes of God. We titled the study, Big God, Little Me. Because as you study God, as he gets bigger in your understanding, as you grow in your knowledge of God, you shrink. (laughs) We're able to worship him greater in humility as, he, as we grow in our understanding of him. So let me just encourage you as we come out of this study, even this morning, to recognize that we serve a God that is, he's not like us. We are made in his image, he's not made in ours. Let's worship him for that. Be humble before him. As we continue through this study, let's seek to be able to, even do what Jeremiah says, to be able to boast that we know and understand God. A fascinating scripture gives us permission to boast. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows and understands God. Let's seek to humble ourselves before the text, to praise God for who he is and to grow in our knowledge of him. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study. What an amazing privilege to study your attributes, to study what you are like. Humble us as we do so. We ask that you would become Great in our minds that you would increase and that we would decrease. Be glorified as we seek to continue to grow in our understanding of what you are like. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen.